So like I said, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. And what we're going to do this morning is really a compare and a contrast between King Saul and his son Jonathan. And we've been looking at Saul. It'll be helpful for us to remember a couple of things this morning as we dive in. Uh, In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was essentially the church. It was the people of God. It was the family of God. And so as we look at King Saul and Prince Jonathan, it's helpful to remember they were both at least professing believers. They both had uh, offices, you could say, in the Old Testament church. They were leaders. And yet we're going to see some important differences in them. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and look at verse 16, just very briefly. This was where we started this whole series when Saul was first being anointed to be king. And the Lord said to Samuel the prophet, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now you can turn to chapter 14 where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. But it's important to remember that the main primary reason that was given that Saul had been raised up to be the king, the leader of God's people, was to fight against the Philistines. The Philistines were wicked. They were oppressing the people of God. And Saul had been raised up as the king, as the leader, to throw off the oppression of these evil people. Okay. So we're going to see, though, if you remember, if you were here last week, we looked at chapter 13, and it seemed like a big battle was about to come between the Israelites and the Philistine oppressors, and the battle never came. And that's where we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Let's start in verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Now what we're going to see in this first point is this, that Jonathan is passionate to do the work of the Lord, while Saul is very passive. This is going to be the first difference that we're going to see. Jonathan decides, I've only got one man with me, but there's a Philistine fort right there. Let's go after them. Where we see Saul, he has 600 men. But it seems like he's trying to stay away from the Philistines, away from danger as much as he can. He's very passive. He's very reluctant. He's very hesitant. Okay? Skip down to uh, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. So notice, he's saying circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of faith, like we have baptism now. He's saying, these Philistines are wicked. They don't trust Yahweh. They don't worship the one true God. He wasn't just doing this because he didn't like them as a people. It was like, they were the enemies of God. That's why I want to attack them. I want to do the Lord's work that he's called us to do. Look at verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. He essentially is saying, I'm down to ride with you, Jonathan. I trust you. I think you're a good leader. You're a godly guy. I have great faith in Yahweh. Let's go after it. Verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come up to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So notice what's happening here. This is very important. Jonathan does not have just a stupid, crazy faith. He's going to take a risk. And and true faith should lead God's people to be willing to take strategic risk in the service of what he has called us to do. But 
Jonathan's not passive, but nor is he presumptive. He doesn't just say, no matter what happens, we're going after it. He says, I think we're supposed to be attacking the Philistines. There's a fort over there. In fact, they have the high ground, so let's do this. Let's go out in the open. Let them see us. We'll come out of hiding. And if they invite us up the cliffs to see them, we'll take that as a sign that God is with us. Now, again, that may not make a lot of strategic sense to us, but he was giving God a chance to say no. Because he said, if the Philistines say, wait there, we're going to come down to you. We're going to take that as a sign from Yahweh that we need to run away and hide. Okay? So we need to learn in our lives how to be willing to take strategic risk of faith in the areas that God is calling us to do that, and yet not just be presumptive and arrogant and take any risk that passes through our mind. Let me just give an example. This will be a stupid and silly example, but I think it will make the point. Imagine that two people wake up tomorrow morning, and one of them prays and says, God, I know that it's important to you that... Christians be talking to non-Christians about Christ and the gospel. So today, when I go to work, God, I'm going to be on the lookout for opportunities to talk to non-Christians about my faith. And I'm praying that you would give me opportunities. I'm praying you would make me bold and loving. But God, if I just think there's any place today where I have the chance to turn the conversation to Christ, I'm going for it. That sounds like a good prayer. Somebody's trying to take a risk. If somebody woke up and said, well, God, I know that you want to take care of me financially, and so I'm going to work today, and my boss, he's really wealthy. He's got so much money, he'll never miss it. If I find any way today that I can steal from the company, I'm just going to assume you're in that, and I'm going to go for it. Well, that would be a moronic prayer, okay, because it's against Scripture. But the point is, Jonathan knew God has called us to attack the Philistines, So he was looking for an opportunity, and he was willing to take a risk. And we need to learn to live in that tension. Lord, I want to step out in faith. I want to live by faith, not just by sight. I want to take risk for you in the ways that you're calling me to, but I don't want to make stupid risk out of arrogance. Okay. Now, uh, let's keep going and see how this story works out. Look at verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison held Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into our hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And the first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Now, you see what happens here? They expose themselves. The Philistines have the high ground, and they basically mock them. They're like, look, two of these little scared Hebrews. Like, hey, guys, why don't you all come up here, and we're going to show you something. And probably they thought, they're not going to climb up here. That would be suicide. So one commentator I read said, probably instantly the Philistine soldiers went straight back to their beer and poker. Because they're like, there's nothing to worry about. Those guys aren't dumb enough to come up here. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they climbed straight up. And in about a half an acre of territory, they killed 20 men. And the men start to panic. And the panic starts to spread. And then there's even an earthquake. It's like God is coming alongside and trying to help them and bless the work of their hands. Where in life right now is God calling you to take a risky step of faith? And if you just look at the circumstances, I mean, think about those circumstances. You and one other guy. And from what we know from last week, if you remember, Jonathan had a sword. Armor bearer probably didn't even have a sword. We're going to climb up a cliff where there's at least 20 men, and we're going to attack them. You've got to have faith. You've got to trust that Yahweh is with you. 
that he wants to bless you? Where is God in your life, in your mission, calling you to take a risky step of faith? And what I would say is don't play it too safe. Don't swim close to the shore. Don't always be hedging your bets. Jonathan was passionate to serve the Lord. Saul was passive. Let's look at this next section. What we're going to see in this section is that Jonathan's very wise, but Saul becomes very rash. So let's start off in verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude were dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now we've got to pause here. Up until this point, Saul's main connection to God has been through Samuel the prophet. But if you remember in the last chapter, they had a parting of ways. And so if you go all the way back to the beginning of Samuel, you could do this later in the day if you want to, there used to be a great high priest by the name of Eli, but his sons were very wicked. And so the priest, that priestly family got rejected by God. And Saul has called back. Now that Samuel has left him, he went and called one of the great grandsons of Elijah, I mean, excuse me, of Eli. He's trying to maintain a connection with Yahweh but he's having a hard time doing it. He's trying to do the right thing, but he's struggling, okay? Matthew Henry said this, it is common for those that have lost the substance of religion to be most fond of the shadows of it, as here is a deserted prince counting, courting a deserted priest. And another commentator said this, Saul was stubbornly religious, Jonathan was practically God-fearing. You understand the point he's making there? Some people have a real personal relationship with Christ, And that doesn't mean that they're sinless. It doesn't mean that they get everything right. It doesn't mean that they show up for church every Sunday morning. But there are other people that seem to have a very weak or very distant or a very half-hearted faith. But you know what? They get real serious about all the rules, all the ceremonies, trying to check all the boxes. Because they don't have that real vital connection with the Lord. They try to do all the external motions. And the point is, the external ceremonies, apart from the vital intimacy really won't help you in the long run. And we're going to see that in Saul's life. Let's pick up in verse 19. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied, and they went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So do you see what is happening? Saul says, hey, let's, let's pray and see, are we supposed to go in battle? But then the battle gets so loud and crazy over there, he says, forget it, let's just attack. And it was the right decision. I mean, Saul in this chapter is going to be a roller coaster. He gets some things right, he gets some things wrong. They go into the battle, and it's a rout. It mentions the Hebrews that were with the Philistines. That, that could have been prisoners. It could have been soldiers that have been conscripted. Probably what it was, they were mercenaries. That when the Philistines had the upper hand, they said, we'll go work for the Philistines. But then when they saw Israel start to win the battle, they're like, oh, forget it, we'll fight for Israel. These were fair weather fans. But here's one thing I want you to think about. When Jonathan decided to start his attack on the Philistines that day, what he could see with his eyes was it's me and my armor bearer and one sword against all the Philistines. Not very good odds. 
But he took a risky step of faith. And God said, hey, Jonathan, let me help you. Number one, I'll give you an earthquake to, to freak the Philistines out. And then number two, all those Hebrews that had deserted and were actually fighting with the Philistines, now they're going to start fighting against the Philistines themselves. And then I'm even going to bring your dad who's sitting over there scared and the rest of the army to come help you. And here's my point, guys. So many times if we feel and sense maybe God is calling us to do something, a risky step of faith, but we're like, I just don't see how it could work out. That's the whole point. And you're supposed to take a step of faith, and then God is able to take your little two fish and five loaves of effort and bless it in miraculous ways and multiply the impact by bringing things to bear that you couldn't have seen inside of yourself, okay? So we see Jonathan's wisdom here. Let's keep going. Look at verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now just pause and think what's happening here. Paul had started this day very passive, very timid, very reluctant, very hesitant. Now when it's time to go into battle, and he probably realizes, my son Jonathan's the real leader out there, and I'm kind of hanging back, and he wants to catch up. Notice he doesn't say, I want to go attack the enemies of the Lord. He says, I want to attack my enemies. Maybe there's a little pride in his heart. But he puts this rash vow on his people. In the middle of battle, you're not allowed to eat any food until nighttime after we've wiped out all my enemies. Now, why would he do this? I think because there was a sense of fear, a sense of him being out of control, and he's trying to get control. He's trying to micromanage the circumstances. Again, he's not living from a place of faith. He's living much more from a place of fear. It's like he was saying to his soldiers, I need more effort from you with less fuel. I need more bricks, less straw. Let let me give you a practical example. Because, guys, we all tend to make rash vows when we are not walking closely with the Lord. Many of these vows can be quiet vows that we make in our own minds that we never say out loud. I used to be friends with her. She hurt me once. I'll never be friends with her again. Never going to risk and open up. I used to work with this guy. used to have a good relationship. We got into some conflict one time, got kind of heated, got kind of weird. I will never talk to that dude again. We make vows like that. But if we get really rash, we'll make public out loud vows. And I'll I'll just give you an example that I experienced one time. We had a guy with Campus Outreach who uh, took a team, launched a team to a new state to start a complete new region from scratch with Campus Outreach. And it started out well. They were leading people to Christ, starting some new campuses. But it it was a hard environment. And so some of the staff that had gone on the original team with him started deciding, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I don't know if I'm really gifted, if I'm cut out. And they started leaving staff, taking other jobs. And the leader started to get a little panicked. And so he made a policy. And here was the policy that he made. He said, if you talk to anyone at any time about even possibly leaving staff, you have to immediately tell your supervisor. Now think about why that's rash. Because the implication was, if a guy is laying in bed at night with his wife and says, you know, honey, I don't know how much longer I want to do this. I'm thinking about maybe a different job. That he's supposed to immediately call his supervisor and say, I need to tell you about some of the pillow talk me and my wife just had. It's insane. It was controlling. It was micromanaging. And some of these staff started to get bothered. And I'll come back to that story in a minute. But the problem is, think about, is there a place where you kind of feel out of control, fearful and worried, and you start trying to micromanage your circumstances? It won't end well. We're going to see how it ends for Saul. Look at verse 25. 
Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And guys, we can get honey just about any time we want to. Just go to the supermarket. Back then, it was a rare find. And it was almost like God was saying, here's some extra energy for your battle. Verse 26, and when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright? Because I tasted a little honey, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Israel won that day, but the victory wasn't as big as it could have been because of Saul's fear and micromanaging in his rash vow. And Jonathan realizes that. Kind of a side note, but an important one. If you're this kind of leader, and guys, in the church, in your home, In your office, a rash, micromanaging, hyper-controlling type leader, the people under you will feel oppressed. They will feel troubled. They will feel distressed. If you're a follower following a leader like that, that's how you will feel. What was underneath? I mean, Saul starts passive, then he becomes rash. What's underneath that? Jonathan starts passionate. He's a wise man. What's underneath that? Ultimately this, Jonathan was faithful. Saul was fearful. Jonathan is living by faith, and Saul is living by fear. And let's see this in the rest of this chapter, okay? So look at verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So let's ask God, make sure this is what we should do. Verse 37. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. So when he goes to the priest, he prays for an answer. The answer doesn't come. He assumes something must be wrong. Somebody must have sinned. Verse 39, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. John. It's prophetic almost. Jonathan is the one that's eaten. Think about how rash Saul is. He's doubling down on his stupidity to make a vow. Hey, I don't know what anybody did. I don't know who did it. But if we find out whoever it was and whatever they did, no matter how big, how small the crime, they're going to get killed today. It's excessive. It's coming from a place of fear. Look at verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I, Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Remember, the Urim and the Thuman were basically like a type of dice, so to speak where God could give a yes or no answer. Is the sin over here or is the sin over here? And it's on the side of Saul and Jonathan. And then verse 42, Then Saul said, Cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. 
I just, I, I paused. I love Jonathan. He's so full of faith. I did it. I didn't know it was wrong. Yeah, I had some honey. I got nothing to hide. He owns it. If I got to die, fine, I'll die. Takes full responsibility. People that are really living by faith in the Lord, they can take responsibility. They don't have to blame shift. Let's keep going. Verse 44, and Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. He's tripling down on his stupidity. Now he's saying, if I don't kill you, I hope God kills me. That's essentially the curse that he just put on himself. Verse 45, then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went on their way. Now, what is the essential difference in this chapter between Jonathan and Saul? It's this. Saul has lost his connection to the Lord. The main way that he had been experiencing fellowship with God had been through Samuel the prophet. And when Samuel left his side, it's like he has no personal connection with the Lord anymore. And listen, when you are living in a place where you are not having the roots of your soul go deep into Christ, you're going to live by fear. And it's going to show up in your life one of two ways. Either you're going to be passive, hesitant, reluctant, hyper-cautious, what's going on? I used to have another guy that worked with Campus Outreach, and sometimes I would call him. I'm not mad. This sounds still crazy to me, but this is a true story. I'd call him and say, hey, man, uh, just want to know how things were going. Anything I could pray for you? He's like, why are you calling? I'm calling to see if there's just how things are going. Just catch up, see if there's anything I can pray for you. Pray. Did somebody tell you to call me? Are you checking in on me? I, huh, no, I'm just trying to pray for you. If you don't want me to pray for you, I'll hang up. But fear leads you to that. And then sometimes you can swing the pendulum to the other side when you decide it's time to get active. I can't be passive anymore. And you'll become overly active, rash, controlling, brash, domineering. And we see both of these in Saul. Now listen, some of that will be determined by your personality. But guys, here's just a warning. When you live this way, really fearful, you will end up isolating yourself from other people. Because people will not trust you to interact with you anymore. Do you see this happening to Saul? He's isolated from Samuel the prophet already. Then he gets isolated from his own son. And by the end of the chapter, it's like all his soldiers have turned against him. They're rising up saying, don't do this. And when you live this way, it's almost like you're being having the personality of a porcupine. And you will push people away. It won't be good. We need to be more in a place where we're wise, we're taking strategic risk. Why? Because we're trusting in God. And he always has a solution. Think about Jonathan here. I mean, Jonathan and Saul both had problems. In some sense, Jonathan had more problems. Jonathan and Saul both had a problem out there with the Philistine. Jonathan had a problem in his own family, in his own nation. His own daddy's trying to kill him at this point. Whatever you're going through, if you have family problems, if you have work problems, I'm not saying that those problems aren't real. But what I'm saying is God always has a solution. And the first thing you ought to always do is go back to him, talk to him, pray to him, seek wisdom from him. I love Jonathan's humility. I'll die if I have to die. Now, like I said, Saul is a roller coaster in this chapter. He gets some things wrong. He gets some things right but he's struggling. 
And one side note of application that I think we can all make. When you see a pattern of sin starting to emerge in your own life, one of the best things that you can do is catch it quick before it grows, before it snowballs out of control. Repent quickly. It won't get better on its own. Now, all of us have sinned to some degree out of fear. We, we, some of us may tend towards the passive side. Some of us might tend towards the rash, controlling side. But we all sin at times out of fear. We need to do everything we can to repent. But guys, this is one of the things that's so great about the Christian religion is that if we repent, there will be grace. There will be mercy. Because the overarching narrative of the whole Bible, and Randall already alluded to it earlier this morning, is that the king of the universe had made a vow. If anybody eats of this forbidden fruit, not forbidden honey, they'll be cursed to die. And Adam and Eve and all of us, in some sense, have eaten of that forbidden fruit. But the king's son came to earth, and he never touched the forbidden fruit. Never even lusted after it. And yet, when he got to the end of his life, he said, I'll die. I will die for my people who were cursed. Jonathan was willing to die for the curse that had come on him. Jesus says, I am willing to die for the curse that has come on my people. The crowd raised up that day and said, no. Jonathan's our savior. He's our deliverer. Let's save him. And it worked. The crowd didn't rise up to save Christ. They cried out, crucified him. And they weren't able to save him. They didn't want to save him. Now, did you notice this? Really quick, we're almost done. If you look in verses 39 through 42, three different times Saul refers to Jonathan. He says, Jonathan, my son, Jonathan, my son, Jonathan, my son. But when he finds out what Jonathan has done and he gets ready to execute him, look in verse 44. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. He quits treating him like a son. He starts treating him just like some soldier in his army that has sinned, and he's going to execute him. And guys, that is a great picture of what God the Father did to Christ on the cross in our stead. He said, I'm not going to treat you like my son. I'm going to treat you like some sinner. And the judicial wrath for all of my people that will be adopted to be my sons is going to come down on you. Guys, Where is Christ calling you to take some baby step of risky faith? Don't live by fear. Live by faith. Because the greatest risk of all time was taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. He literally stepped into hell for you if you're one of his people. And so he might be calling you to some tiny step of faith today. But it's so small by comparison. And we should be so overwhelmingly confident of his love, that he is with us because of what he has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, that whatever small step of faith he's taken us today ought to be easy to take. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Jonathan won a great victory for the nation of Israel that day. The Lord Jesus Christ has won a great victory for us. And just like the nation of Israel, the armies of Israel followed Jonathan into battle, I pray that we would have that same kind of confidence and boldness to follow Christ, our King, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our friend, our older brother, into the battle of life. Would you fill us full of faith? 
take away all of our sinful fear, we pray. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.